Welcome. My name is Yvonne Benninger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts. You can find them on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members together with my team have put together. And I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues. Hello, my name is Paolo Frazzini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York, and I'm also your host for this Brexit Musing series. So in this episode, we will hear from Alex Dean, who is a senior managing director and the head of UK public affairs at FTI Consulting, and his colleague, Dr. Erica Richardson, who is a managing director in FTI's public affairs practice based in the US. So with these two experts, you'll get an idea of where negotiations are now with Brexit and what the current expectations are for third party deals. So Alex and Erica will continue with a discussion on the impact of the recent U.S. elections on Brexit and what possible outcomes may be presented between the U.K. and the European Union. Who are the winners and who are the losers? Which sectors will benefit the most? And what does this mean for U.K.-U.S. trade relations? We're very happy to have you here both with us today. And with that, I pass it along to you, Erica. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. And thank you for this opportunity to have this discussion. We'll get right into it. Alex, you've been counseling clients globally on Brexit and the implications for business. Can you start us off with a state of play at the moment and give us a look at where we are with Brexit negotiation deals? Sure. Thank you, Erica. And thank you for the chance to have this conversation. We are very close, I think, to having a deal with the European Union and the United Kingdom. The parties have finally stopped briefing off in the press. And, uh, you know, when the guns stop firing, that tends to be when people are about to go over the top. We are finally at the point, I think. And I know this has been said many times, but I think we're finally at the point where we can say the end is in sight. And whilst I wouldn't want to get bogged down in the specifics of, of the date and timetable, because this is something in which people have shown admirable flexibility, as we speak today, the European Parliament has indicated it's got it's willing to potentially sit between Christmas and New Year, which is pretty unprecedented in order to get a deal done. So let's not focus on when the sitting day might happen that concludes things, because there's going to be some wiggle room on that. But focus instead on where the deal is at in substance. And I would say, first of all, some 95 percent of the deal is basically already written that we can number the existing and outstanding dispute areas on fingers of one hand. And that there is a great deal of political will on both sides to uh, get this deal done, not only because, but particularly because of the economic disruption being experienced between the parties already because of coronavirus. So the added disruption of an untidy Brexit would add to that. So I think uh, the the FTI base case has always been that a deal between the parties is the most likely single outcome. And our view on that remains unchanged. We think there will be a deal. And the things that are um, still in dispute are things like, and I know this is hard to believe at this stage, but fishing rights, where the United Kingdom's waters are large and attractive and, and have under the common fisheries policy, some rights extended for European fishing vessels. This is a topic on which I foresee compromise between the parties, Erica. I think that given that if we think about this pragmatically on day one of the UK ending the transition period, 
British vessels will not be up to speed and scale. The fleet won't be big enough to fish all of British waters, even if we had you know, every right to and we hadn't restricted anyone else's right to the waters. Pragmatically, there's space for a compromise on the fishing point. Now, I'm sure British fishermen will say we've been hard done by on that and European fishermen will say we've been hard done by. But there's going to be a compromise between the parties on fishing. On things like state aid, I've always found this conversation a bit bizarre because the UK has always got to be amongst the least likely candidates to go off and start picking winners or picking losers and handing out state aid, given its free market preference amongst member states of the European Union anyway. But furthermore, in current environment, people are rampantly carrying out exercises in state aid because of coronavirus. And indeed, quite rightly, there are exemptions and provisions in the regulation and legislation overseeing um, state aid rules for pandemics. So I think we're, you know, the fact that most nation states are indulging in wild amounts of state aid at present rather puts the dispute on state aid into perspective anyway. So I think an agreement on state aid is actually not that difficult to uh, put into place. And then finally on equivalence, you know, on British standards and rules and regulations being judged more broadly, apart from the state aid one, uh, equivalent and acceptable to EU standards and, and rules for trading purposes. Well, when the United Kingdom leaves the EU, it won't just have uh, finally ends the transition period and is out finally from the, the rule book of the EU. It won't just have similar rules to the European Union. The rules will be identical because we'll be in the member state for decades. So the UK will say, we reserve the right to diverge over time, but you know, look at our rules, they're the same as yours now. And the EU will say, we respect the UK's sovereign right to diverge over time, and we reserve the right to say you've diverged too far and you're outside, outside the agreement. But for now, everything is fine. Honor is served on both sides. So I think on those kind of sticking points, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then the one people that's got people excited about, which is the internal markets bill about Ireland, is kind of double or nothing. Because if you get a deal of any kind, it doesn't come into play. It's no, no pun intended or to use an old fashioned term nowadays. It was supposed to be a backstop. So we're not we're going to have the Irish internal market bill in the first place, even if the government could get it past uh, Parliament in Westminster, which it looks like it can't anyway. So actually, I think all the areas of disputes between the parties are going to get ironed out. And everyone will emerge from some smoke-filled, sweaty chamber at two in the morning, patting each other on the back and saying, you know, well done, Michelle. No, no, well done, David. Deal is done. Well, actually, we can look at it now and say the deal is pretty much done already. Well, that's, that's a, a helpful overview. So looking forward now, what do you think that this means for expectations for third-party deals and for trade in the broadest sense? Okay, so really good question. And I think that there's no doubt in my mind that the UK successfully concluding a trade deal with Japan was an accelerant in the process of securing a deal between the United Kingdom and the European Union. A, because it demonstrated that things could be done quickly and kind of, you know, lent some strength to the idea that people can get on with things and conclude them uh, swiftly. But moreover, it was an indication to the European Union that the UK was going to get on with things and, and much better to have the deal that we've all mooted be in place rather than have the UK as a kind of outsized uh, in their nightmare scenario. Singapore on steroids just off the coast of, uh, of the European Union doing all, all sorts of deals with third parties. So I think J Japan's example is a strong one of the UK's intended pursuit of deals which take what the UK had in place between as a member state of the European Union basically say, right, we'll do all of that unless there's any dispute over individual bits and pieces and see what else we can do. And at the margins, I don't think many people would claim it's enormous, uh, enormously significant, but at the margins, you can see bits and pieces of the Japan deal that are a bit better than the deal and a bit more comprehensive than the deal that the EU has. So that's a good template. 
and then I suppose most significantly, and I'm really keen to talk to you about this one, is the prospect and potential for a deal between the UK and the United States of America. Of course, everyone knows that the United States is the UK's largest investor. Fewer perhaps might know that the UK is America's largest investor. Every day, a million Brits get up and work for an American business. And a million Americans get up and work for a British business. There are no two closer financial centres than London and New York. So I think there's lots of potential synergies for deals between the UK and the US. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, to see what the Biden administration's approach to that might be. But nevertheless, I think that the, the largest single deal on the horizon is the potential for a deal between the UK and the US. And that's got to be of interest to listeners to this podcast, I would think. I think that's great context and does provide an opportunity for us to pivot a little bit to discuss what the U.S. elections mean for for Brexit negotiations. As of this recording, President Trump has has yet to concede and there are still several legal actions happening in, in various states. But the expectation is that Joe Biden will be certified as the winner of the presidential election. The inauguration of the new president in the U.S. isn't until January 20th. So I am assuming, based on your state of play and the picture you paint of the emergence from the back rooms and everyone patting each other on the back, hopefully that comes sometime before January 20th. Correct. Um, but, Christmas. Yes, but we'll see. And, you know, as no doubt listeners are aware, Donald Trump was quite keen to get a UK-US trade deal done and to work with Prime Minister Johnson. I'm actually quite, this may seem counterintuitive, but I am more optimistic actually about the prospects of a deal between the UK and the US under a putative President Biden administration. And the reason for that isn't to do with your side of the pond, it's to do with mine. Because in Britain, the prospect of a buying your NHS, hormone injected beef, chlorine washed chicken trade deal coming down the pipe from President Trump, a vilified hate figure in the United Kingdom, all that dies away if it's in fact Joe Biden's administration, which has been wildly welcomed by the bien left and wildly welcomed by those who are um, skeptical about Brexit and skeptical about a trade deal between the UK and the US. I think just in political terms, it becomes a great deal easier to sell a trade deal between the UK and the US under Joe Biden. And I would also say this, Joe Biden is a pretty much a pragmatist. I mean, you can point to other people who supported his candidacy, who were, who were really on the extreme of the extent to which they were campaigning because they didn't like Donald Trump. In the end, Joe Biden, a known political quantity, who I note just celebrated his 50th year in some kind of public office and joined Congress in 72 or was elected to Congress in 72 and and stood up for the UK in the course of the Falklands when he was in um, when he was in Congress. I don't get the sense that he's going to be particularly critical of the UK, contrary to some of the things that have been said in press on your side of the pond and on mine. But I do think it gets a lot easier to sell a deal if Biden's the public face of it rather than President Trump. I agree with you on that. I will say, though, having been in government and uh, as of you and seen the limited capacity that career staff, frankly, and civil servants on the UK side have to prioritize multiple workflows. I do think it's going to be a big priority for the US to be restoring diplomatic relations all over the world and be engaging. And I do think that there is going to be a question about, do we see a pivot in US leadership and engagement to Europe? 
before we see engagement in terms of sitting down and hammering out the finer deals of a trade deal, you know, the the fishing rights conversations between the US and the UK versus the US and, and the sure. EU, who ends up as the priority in the stack of papers on on the civil servant's desk. And I kind of have to believe based on the other priorities of a Biden administration, whether it's rejoining the the Paris agreements or or any other priorities, that they're going to be more likely to prioritize their relationship with Europe than they are in the UK, just based on some of the other competing priorities of the administration. Oh, no. So I, I see that. Of course, I think that in some ways we might think of Joe Biden in reversion to an older generation than, than the man he served as vice president. We see a reversion to potentially the last generation of American leaders who see Europe as central rather than the Asian pivot that President Obama gave us. Now, I agree with that. And I also agree that he's, of course, likely to be multilateral in his approach and all of the things that have been d- discarded or sidelined from the WHO, WTO, Paris Accord and so forth, trade in North America, you know, all, all those things, I think, are, are going to come roaring back. But some of them are actually quite easy fixes and quite quick fixes because America get, gets welcome back into things uh, for existing frameworks that are already there. And secondly, the dollar value of a trade deal with the UK is still quite high. You know, if you are each other's largest investors and traders, then you, you get a, a quite a quick bit of easy squeeze and a quite a, a good bit of political credit. But as I was saying, I, I think that for some time, the biggest single stumbling block has been on the UK side, an opposition to the notion of a Trump-led trade deal. So if we lose a bit on the Biden focus and, and on the prioritization, we definitely gain a bit on the UK side and the willingness to do the deal bilaterally across UK politics. And by the way, Erica, one word of correction. I never worked in government. I was in opposition. I was the brave maybe you would have died. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I am keen. I appreciate that perspective on the difference from a UK point of view between a sure. Trump administration and a Biden administration. So getting back to Brexit specifically, yeah. who are you thinking winners and losers, which which sectors are gonna benefit the most from whatever we see as a final deal or, or the process generally? Who do you think sure. benefits and, and who do you think there's still gonna be some disadvantages as a result of how this process goes? Sure. So there is a clear area of consensus that will emerge, I think, between the parties, which is a, a free flowing trade of goods between the UK and the EU. I mean, after all, the UK opposite, offers a wild uh, trade deficit with the rest of the EU uh, member states. And therefore, it's very much in the EU's interest if there is a deal to keep the goods flowing on an uninterrupted basis. So I think that's very likely to to continue. So there are some people concerned about the kind of recognition that happens in goods in a in a system in which, for example, you've got to deal with South Korea on, say, cars. Yeah, does the UK component count as an EU component or not, or an EU plus component on something you import to South Korea? That's a, a question mark. And if the deal smooths that out and means uninterrupted trade to third parties like that for combined UK EU products, then that will be a winner. And if it doesn't, then that's a clear area for potential loss. 
And it might mean that redomiciling for some of that activity from the UK to continental Europe. On the other hand, we've seen businesses that have been forced to choose. And there are kind of there are two obvious uh, examples, Unilever and Shell, which were dual listed between the UK and the Netherlands, and when forced to choose a single listing, they actually didn't have to, but they'd gone down that path enough that business-wise, they basically had to make a choice. Their shareholders obliged them in both cases to uh, choose the UK. And I would say, actually, Erica, that that was not to do with Brexit. And I, you know, the Unilever example is fascinating because they were the subject of an attempted takeover bid at the time or just prior. It was really about the desire of the business to avoid the UK regime, which says the price is the price, and have a broader uh, notion of, of social and economic value, such as with takeover views applied in jurisdictions like the Netherlands, where your broader societal impact is assessed much more um, when people consider your takeover. Uh, I mean, I would regard that as a capitalist and free marketeer. I'd regard that as a victory for the market. And certainly the, the London Stock Exchange and the city more broadly has seen effectively none of the weakness that people had predicted would happen for the UK after a Brexit vote. Caveat, we're always reminded you haven't left yet or you're not out of the transition period yet. But, you know, if this flight was going to happen that people had been predicting, you might have thought by now that businesses would have done it. And lots of the companies that people talk about, especially in financial services, have indeed established something in the European Union, which will mean they're able to ensure uninterrupted continuity of service for their clients. Small offices, mostly populated by nationals of the country they're in, but the headcount in the UK has remained unchanged. The headquarters, the big presence has remained unchanged. So that one I kind of call neutral, or if you push it, sometimes it's benefiting to the UK because people choose the freer market, more shareholder oriented position. And then on the outside of the EU-UK relationship side, the clear winners, the clear winners are going to be businesses and companies that want to import from outside of the EU because prices have been kept high in the EU to protect European producers and, and businesses. So on everything from sugar and raw materials like that, where the UK used to trade a great deal more with its um, with its colonies and with its friends in the Commonwealth. And you know, it's why you saw howls of agony from Australia and New Zealand and, uh, and the sugar producing former colonies when the tariffs and barriers went up. It's one of the reasons why we saw Tate and Lyle be one of the few businesses take a, um, an openly pro-Brexit stance because they've been paying a higher price for their goods, all the way through to people who want to import things like advanced electronics and uh, what we in the UK called white goods, you know, in fridges and, and, um, and kitchen goods and dishwashers and so forth. But they're somewhere between somewhat cheaper on the open market and a lot cheaper buying from the United States and places like that. So if you're trying to buy from outside the EU and the customs union has kept prices high, then the winner will be both the UK business seeking to do the import and the consumer. And that's an obvious potential uh, beneficiary. And then the last beneficiaries are obviously the potential for the UK to do deals with third parties. The EU has never put services in trade deals with third parties and has still to complete the single market for services within the European Union. The UK is the best in Europe at services. You've got to think that the UK is more likely to prioritise the service economy in the UK in trade deals. So I think it's a pretty bright future for the UK in service economy terms when it's able to, to build its own trade deals around what we're good at. That's helpful. And, and I want to be mindful of time, but get one last quick question for you and then we can wrap up. What do you think businesses how do you think that they should be preparing themselves and, and what should they be considering about the impact of these negotiations on them? Well, the, the real thing to remember 
is that A, these um, negotiations build a framework that will then flux and change over time. I think it's very likely we get a deal, and I think it's quite likely in the medium term that deal comes under some pressure because people say, you know, this part or that part ha hasn't been complied with. Some people think it's a binary, and they tend to be the people who have always said we won't get a deal. I mean, I think we're much more likely to get a deal, but then you develop trouble in the medium term. And if that's right, then business has a real part to play in talking about the importance of free trade in quite old fashioned terms about the benefits of, of free trade and keeping those things on, on the road once you get the deal. Because it's not get a deal, hallelujah, walk away. It's get a deal, show that it works and carry on with the trade within it and underneath it. But secondly, and to my view, perhaps even more importantly, is the deal with all the economies around the world that are growing faster than the EU, which is basically everybody. And doing deals with countries and nations and parties and groups and conglomerates outside of the European Union with the UK. And part of the reason the UK voted to leave the European Union was to embrace that kind of global vision. Well, guess what? If we're going to pursue trade deals with third countries, then each and every one of them involves a conversation between the UK and the ASEAN country, for argument's sake, that you're seeking to do a deal with. And as, top of my head, Vietnam emerges as the next big thing and the next country seeking to scale up and, and get its productivity up and move away from having very commoditized, cheap labor um, things and, and having stuff outsourced to it to building a bigger kind of services and manufacturing high-end economy of its own. Then businesses that work in that space, just to use one example, should be at the forefront of the conversations between the UK and the country concerned. Magnify that and duplicate it across every single other country. And think about the benefits you get. If the UK and the US are working hand in glove, as I anticipate and hope they will be, the benefits you get from being a, an Anglo-American business seeking to leverage the benefit of a UK trade deal in one of those third countries. That's what I'd be urging businesses to do. There's a lot of positivity that can come out of a post-Brexit UK driven to do third, tra third party trade deals with other countries and businesses that are strong in the UK and strong with our, uh, our closest economic allies like the United States have everything to benefit from that. Thanks, Alex. Uh, and I think we'll end there. Paulo, thank you so much for, for having us. We really appreciate the members of the European American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, this is a great opportunity for, for both of us to have this discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you both. We really enjoyed having you here today to speak with us. Very happy to hear your thoughts and insights on the Brexit negotiations at hand. So with that, we conclude this episode with Alex and Erica from FTI Consulting. I would like to also thank our audience. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our program and stay tuned for our next podcast where we muse about Brexit. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaccny.com right smash podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at eaccny.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved and how to join our transatlantic network.